0: So we're coming to a passage today in Ephesians chapter 6, which represents basically the climax of this letter. I believe everything that Paul's been talking about comes to a crescendo in this passage. And before we dive in, I'm going to voice one more prayer for us, and then we will do just that. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles, would you open up our hearts to receive your word? Would you give us grace to respond in faith to what you have for us God, I pray that we would be conformed more into the image of Christ as a result of our time together. Uh, Lord, let it be fruitful in that direction for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past Thursday on June 6th, that was the 75th anniversary of what's come to be known as D-Day. It was the day when Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy in what was called Operation Overlord uh, in World War II. And if you're familiar with that event and that occasion, about 160,000 troops and 5,000 ships, 13,000 aircrafts just collapsed on this 50-mile stretch in Normandy. And as the soldiers were disbarking and engaging the beachfront, they were hearing certain exhortations being uh, shouted over and over and over again coming from different Directions, these exhortations that were designed to keep them moving forward in the face of great resistance and in the face of great opposition. Some of those exhortations, as recalled by some of the survivors, went like this They said, Fight to get your troops ashore, fight to save your ships, and if you've got any strength left, fight to save yourself. They said, We may die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. They shouted, This is it. Pick it up, put it on. You've got a one way ticket, and this is the end of the line. And you know the story, you know that lots of many lives were lost. In fact, within a 15-minute window, over 2,500 American soldiers lost their lives. By the time it was all said and done, 9,000, a little over 9,000 soldiers lost their lives. But through their courage, through their sacrifice, they paved the way for 100,000 more soldiers to grab hold of that beach and to advance across the continent of Europe and in an effort to defeat Hitler, it was a remarkable, remarkable moment that changed the tides of that great war. Now, I share with you that this afternoon because I want you to consider what may have been the mentality of the soldiers as they were approaching the beach. I doubt very seriously that any of the soldiers were naive about what they were getting themselves into. I do not believe they were naive. I do not believe they were delusional. I do not think any of them thought they were stepping onto an exotic beach in Normandy on a French beach for a vacation. That all of them were aware of what they were getting themselves into. They were entering occupied territory. Territory that was occupied by an enemy that wanted to destroy them. And these soldiers knew that this enemy could not be evaded forever. That they could not live with their head in the sands. That would serve no one well. And so this enemy could not be evaded. He had to be engaged. And so what did they do? They geared up and they stood up against enemy opposition. When you come to this moment in Ephesians chapter 6, this is basically when Paul tells the church, it's time for you guys to realize what's going on all around you. And it is time for you as followers of Jesus to gear up and to stand up against great opposition and against great evil. You see, Paul understands that the church right now occupies enemy territory, that we are surrounded by various forms of opposition. We are engaged in a spiritual war that we cannot evade and that we must engage. Paul's been preparing us for this direction. Earlier on in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 2, he refers to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. He kind of set that frame of mind in the readers of this letter. And then he comes to the end of or this Last portion in the letter, and he expands on this, on the reality of spiritual warfare, saying, I do not want the church to be naive. I do not want the church to be delusional about what's going on around them in the world that is. He says, I want the church to gear up, and I want the church to stand up against the forces of evil. So when you step into verse 10, you begin to see him dialing, in, dialing us into the reality of spiritual warfare, and he's talking about it as something that is, because it is something that is. This is Paul following in the wake of Jesus, who lived his life believing that there was a spiritual warfare taking place in the world. This is why Jesus spent so much time engaging people who were possessed and oppressed by demonic activity, and he was confronting them and engaging them because he came to bring liberty to the captives and to set people free from that dynamic. And so Paul this apostle is following in his wake, and he's encouraging the church not to be naive and not to be delusional about what's going on around them. So you think about the reality of spiritual warfare. Pick up in verse 10. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. I believe if we were to take a poll right now, and if you're someone who considers yourself a Christian and you've been around church for a little while or maybe a long while. I bet if we were to take a poll in this room and in most churches throughout the city and around the world, I think many Christians would agree with the idea or the concept or the proposition that spiritual warfare is a reality. I believe many Christians would, in some way, shape, or form, nod their head in agreement if I said spiritual warfare is real, yes or no. I believe more Christians agree with that premise, they agree with that dynamic, than those who actually believe it. You see, I think there's a big difference between agreeing that something is true agreeing that something is real, agreeing with a truth or a proposition than there is actually believing in that truth or believing in that proposition. And so in my opinion, far more Christians believe or agree with the concept of spiritual warfare than actually believe in the reality of spiritual warfare. So the reason why I think this is true, because if you want to know what a person believes, you don't just listen to what they say, Right? You don't just ask them to nod their head in agreement with whatever you're telling them or asking them about whether or not they believe it. No, the way you learn about what a person believes isn't, doesn't happen necessarily by living, listening to what they have to say, but by looking at how they live. Beliefs affect behavior. Beliefs give shape to the things that we are doing on a daily basis, which is why I think not many Christians actually believe in the reality of spiritual warfare. Because if we believed in it, we're going to talk about it in different kinds of ways. And we're going to take seriously what the Bible teaches on this front. I think many Christians are more like kids skipping rope on the playground than, than they are soldiers engaging a battleground. That we treat this world as a playground, not a battleground in the regular rhythms of our approach to this thing called life. And so I want us to think hard about this tonight because I want us to embrace and recognize the reality of spiritual warfare that Paul is cueing us into in this moment. And I know talking about spiritual warfare can raise some red flags it can raise a bunch of question marks. And you might be wondering, well, is Andrew about to take us in a crazy direction as a church? Because you can go in a crazy direction when it comes to the topic of spiritual warfare. And I have no intention in taking us in a crazy direction, but I do have every intention in taking us in a serious direction, taking us in a sober-minded direction. We're not gonna go crazy, but we are gonna get sober-minded, and we are gonna be alert about these realities, for this is what the scriptures implore us to do. C.S. Lewis put it this way about the different ways that people respond to this whole idea of spiritual warfare. He says, when it comes to the demonic, people usually fall into one of two errors. Either they take him or spiritual warfare altogether too seriously or they do not take him seriously enough. They, are, they attribute everything to, the, to demonic activity or they attribute nothing to demonic activity. Now, if I were honest about who I, where I think we are as a church and where I think we are as Christians in this culture and in this context, I think we fall in the latter category. I don't think we take spiritual warfare seriously enough because if we did, again, it's going to affect how we shape our lives, and we're gonna, it's going to affect how we go about our days. Now, when it comes to these two categories, where everything is attributed to demonic activity or nothing's attributed to demonic activity, I, I want us to consider how we can avoid falling into a simplistic approach to spiritual warfare. When you think about the struggles of life, maybe the, str- the, the struggles you're having in your life or in your marriage or in your parenting or in your singleness, whatever struggles you may be having right now, I want us to think well about those so that we don't get simplistic in what we're saying is the problem. Because a simplistic approach boils everything down to one explanation for why we may be struggling in this life or struggling in this world. There was a guy by the name of Richard Baxter. He pastored in the 17th century, and he was a phenomenal pastor. He set a high bar for guys like me. He, he loved people well, he served people well, and in many ways, he was ahead of his time. He wrote a book on the, the reality of depression. And he wrote this book on depression, and if you were to read it today, you would have thought it was written yesterday. It was ahead of its time, and I would highly encourage it for anyone who may be struggling with that dynamic. And so he writes this book, and he asks the question what causes depression? Why, are, why do people get stuck in a rut? And you might think, well, he's a pastor. He's obviously gonna attribute it to spiritual effects and to spiritual things, but that's not what he does. He isn't simplistic, he's robust, he's nuanced, he's balanced. So he asks the question, what causes, what are the possible causes of depression? He says, well, it could be caused by something physical. And if the cause is something physical, then a person needs medicine, a person needs food, a person needs rest. But then he goes on and says it might also be something psychological that's causing it. And if there's a psychological cause, what a person needs is love and support and affirmation. They need a relational network to come around them and to help shore them up. And, but then he goes on and says there may also be a moral cause. A person's depression may be tied to the fact that they're living in sin. And they're feeling guilty over something that they should feel guilty about. And that lingering guilt is turning them Downcast, and so their soul isn't upright, their soul isn't standing, their soul is shrinking back, and it may be tied to something moral. There may be a sin issue there, and if that's the case, he says, what that that person needs then is repentance. That person needs to believe the gospel. They need to seek restoration for their soul and their life, and so he lays out those three possible explanations. But then he comes around, he says, but then there's also the possibility... That a person's depression and a person's downcast soul, it may be tied to something spiritual. And what I love about his approach is that he isn't reductionistic, he isn't simplistic. He's robust, he's balanced, he's nuanced. And when it comes to how you and I are engaging just the various struggles of life, we aim to be balanced, nuanced. We aim to have a robust approach to the realities and the struggles of life in a fallen world some of our issues may be physical some of our issues may be psychological some of our issues may be moral some of our issues yes may be spiritual and that's what i want us to think about tonight so c.s lewis says don't fall into one of the two categories where you attribute everything or you attribute nothing instead find some balance be robust and so we think about this because again paul is cueing us into the reality of spiritual warfare now one of the things I just kind of want to put out there is is a, a thought that, that, that I want you to chew on and to consider is that our spiritual enemy, our enemy is spiritual, and as such, our spiritual enemy is not seeking your recognition. He's not seeking your affirmation. Meaning the devil, Satan, and all of his minions, all of his demons, they could care less whether or not you believe in them. They don't need you to puff up their self esteem by affirming their existence. That's not what they're after. They're not after our recognition. What they are after is our destruction. And they are going to employ whatever strategies are needed to destroy our lives. And a lot of times, especially in this context, that strategy means to be subtle, that strategy means to remain concealed and hidden. So they're not so much after our recognition, but they are after our destruction. We read this in multiple places in the Bible. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus refers to a thief. And he says a thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter chapter five, verse eight. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking for anyone he can Devour. So he wants to devour, he wants to destroy, that's his goal, that's his aim. Now, I love 1 Peter 5, 8 for many reasons, one of which is that Peter compares the devil to a lion, and you know that a lion is a canine, that's a member of the cat family, and so it just kind of affirms a suspicion I've had for a long time uh, that that cats are demonic, and uh, it just kind of puts it in that that category, sorry, Jen, I... uh, and my wife is a cat person, and so I say that with all due respect. And I'm just trying to, I'm trying to convert her to biblical Christianity that says, look, cats are demonic. And so we have this movement where Satan could care less of whether or not you recognize him. Demons don't care if you see them. All they're after is whether or not they can destroy you, whether they can sidetrack you, whether they can keep you from standing in the gospel and standing in your faith. And so this reality of spiritual warfare recognizes that we have an enemy who is spiritual. We can't see him necessarily. He's a spiritual being. We know that Satan, from elsewhere in the Bible, is a fallen angel. And when he fell, when he rebelled against God, he took with him a whole host of angels who then became his minions, his demons, and they are wreaking havoc on the world. But these are spiritual persons. They are spiritual forces but then not only is our enemy spiritual our enemy is very strong our enemy is strong why else do you think Paul would start this passage finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength he's saying you need strength because your enemy is strong but notice he says I want you to be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength he's saying you're not strong enough to handle them I'm not telling you just to be strong in and of yourself. I'm telling you to be strengthened by the Lord because the enemy that we face in this world is stronger than us. He is smarter than us. He is better than us at what he's trying to do. Therefore, we need dependence. We must be strengthened by the Lord. And what's interesting about Ephesians is that Paul has actually prayed in this direction twice before he gets here. And I want you to listen to where our strength comes from in this moment. If you take into consideration, first, chapter 1, verse 19, Paul voices a prayer for the church. We'll start in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of God's calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He's praying for the church to be strong. And then you get into chapter 3, verse 16. Verse 16. He says, I pray that God may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being. Now, how is his power coming? How is his strength coming? Well, he says it's coming through his spirit. He's praying for you and I to be strengthened in the Lord, in his vast strength. And the strength of the Lord comes through the presence of the Lord in our lives. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, look, if you're going to engage a spiritual enemy who is stronger than you, then you've got to rely on spiritual means. You must be filled with the Holy, Holy Spirit, empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit in your endeavors because, yes, your enemy is strong. I love what 1 John chapter 4 verse says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, that the one who is in you, that is the Holy Spirit, is greater, is stronger than the one who is in this world. So yes, we face a strong enemy, but we have this a much stronger spirit at work within us. And so we pray and we ask for strength and we rely upon who God has given us, namely himself, to do, to do all of these things. I was talking to Pastor Jeff this past week, and he was telling me about this lizard in the desert, that if you were to walk across this, if you were to come across this particular lizard in the desert and if, if it saw you and if the lizard, you know, viewed you as a threat or viewed you as something it wanted to take out, what this lizard would do would, it, it'll puff itself up in order to get really big and make itself look horrifying. And if that didn't work, if you just kind of look at this lizard puffing itself up, trying to frighten you and intimidate you, and, and you don't move, you don't leave, you don't flee, then he'll kind of go in the opposite direction. And rather than puffing himself up, he'll then shrink back and he'll roll over and play dead. And so the strength of this lizard in the the desert is actually his ability to lie and to deceive. The ability to lie and deceive, to make creatures think that it, it is more powerful than it is, but then also to make creatures think that it is not nearly as powerful as it actually is. Well, when we say that we have a spiritual enemy who is really strong, I want you to know that his strength is found in his lies. His strength is found in his deception. The enemy loves to try to puff himself up so that we think he is stronger than he actually is. And he also likes to kind of shrink back and to conceal himself so that we think he's not as strong as he actually is. And we can move in either of those directions. Which is why we want to recognize what Paul is telling us here, that we have a spiritual enemy who is very strong. His strength is in his deception. It's in his deceit. And with that, you begin to see that our enemy is strategic, that he has strategies, that he employs plans to take people and families and churches out. You look at verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against, here it is, the schemes of the devil, that our enemy is spiritual, he is strong, and he is strategic. This idea of schemes, it means strategies. It means he has a portfolio. He has a game plan on the things he wants to do in lives, in churches, and in the world. Do you understand that Satan and his demons have been observing human nature for thousands of years? They've been observing human nature for thousands of years. They know how we are wired. Therefore, the schemes and the strategies that they develop to take People out. They are very well thought through, and they are very, very effective. Now, when it comes to this idea of the schemes of the devil, later on in the fall, in September, we're going to host our next Gospel Clarity uh, study series, and and we're going to take on the topic, the gospel and spiritual warfare. And we're going to spend a whole lot more time on this issue and on this theme, looking at cover to cover from the scriptures. Very similar to what we did last time when we looked at the gospel and ethnic identity. Well, that's coming up in September, and there's a whole lot more that could be said about these schemes that I'm not going to say tonight. But I do want to identify two dynamics of these schemes. Two ways that the enemy strategizes and schemes against you to keep you from being who God has called and redeemed you to be. As he schemes against the church so that the church doesn't make God's grace visible to the watching world. Two fundamental basic parts of his scheming. The first concerns temptation seems fairly obvious considering the first time we meet the devil in the Bible, that's exactly what he's doing. He's tempting Adam and Eve, and you know the story. Eve's hanging out by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent slithers up, and he calls into question the character of God, and he holds out this apple or this fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit it was. And, and she looked at it, and she saw that it was pleasing to the eyes and that it would be good for food, and it was desired to make her wise. And so she took and she ate, and she succumbed to the temptation. And the serpent has been tempting people like that ever since. Basically what he does in temptation is that he hides, he shows us the bait and he hides the hook. He offers short-term pleasures while hiding the long-term misery that giving in to certain temptations will inevitably, inevitably cause. That's what he does in temptation. Now, to be effective in a Christian's life whenever he begins to tempt us and he begins to show us bait while hiding the hook, short-term pleasures, long-term miseries, the way he's so effective in doing that is because is, is in every temptation, there's an attack against the character of God. In every temptation, there's a distortion over who God is and what God is like. When it comes to temptation, what I think happens is that The enemy gets us fixated on one aspect of who God is to the neglect of other aspects. And in temptation, what I think happens many times is that we get so fixated on the love of God that we forget about the holiness of God. We forget about the justice of God. We forget about God's wrath towards sin. And we get so fixated on his love that we don't think about his holiness and all of a sudden we can justify succumbing to temptation. We don't think sin is a big deal. We're not thinking well about the character of God and we succumb to that temptation. We succumb to the devil's schemes. So that's one area of the schemes that I want you to think about tonight. The other area concerns this dynamic of accusation. For not only does the enemy conspire to tempt us and to lure us away from, from being faithful and obedient to God and distorting the character of the God in the process, he also accuses us. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, this is exactly how he's referred that the devil is referred to as the accuser of God's people. He's constantly hurling accusations at us, saying that you are not lovable, that you are not right, that you are not wanted, that you are not good enough, just hurling accusation after accusation after accusation at us. And what often happens in this scheme is when that the enemy accuses us, he causes us to think more about our sin and less about our Savior. We become fixated on what's wrong with us, and we're no longer thinking about the beauty of Jesus, and the salvation that Jesus has given us, and so we start believing the accusations that he's hurling against us. Now, the tricky thing about accusations is that sometimes those accusations are right, and sometimes they're true. Sometimes when the serpent says, look, you've been disobedient, and he accuses you of disobedience, he's right because you have been. But where he goes wrong is when he begins to distort your understanding of who God is. If in temptation he exaggerates the love of God and he diminishes the holiness of God, in accusation you kind of get the exact opposite, where he exaggerates the holiness of God and he minimizes the love of God. You get so fixated on God's holiness, you get so fixated on that one aspect of who he is, on his judgment and on his wrath that you can't even think about love, and as a result you wallow in that accusation, and you are no longer able to stand up in your faith. Instead you're shrinking back, you're falling over, you're giving up. Every temptation and every accusation is tied to some distortion of who God is. And so the question becomes, well, how do you begin to navigate those waters? Well, let me ask you, who do you believe God to be? Do you believe God is loving? While at the same time, do you believe God is holy? And if you believe God is loving and if you believe God is holy, how are those two aspects of his character reconciled? How are they harmonized? Where they're harmonized each time you and I think about the cross of Christ. Every time we turn our attention to Jesus who is crucified on our behalf and we see how through the cross God upholds his justice. He makes known his holiness. He makes known his hatred of sin while at the same time pouring his love in sinners' direction. He's saying, look, I am holy and I'm loving all at the same time. That's what my cross declares. So the biggest threat to the enemy's attack on our lives is faith in the gospel. His schemes are torn down when we are looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. When we are keeping our, our understanding of who God is in line with who he reveals himself to be through the crucifixion of Christ, that's when we overcome temptation. That's when we can overcome accusations. That's when his schemes begin to fall apart. So you have this the reality of spiritual warfare being talked about here in these first few verses, but then he gets more pointed in verse 13 when he starts talking about the armor of spiritual warfare. And I think the armor that he's about to talk about is related to gospel realities. It's related to all the things that Jesus did for us and all the things that Jesus gives to us. Pick it up in verse 13. It says, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything to take your stand, stand therefore with the truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness of the go- for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now what I find fascinating about this passage is that as Paul is talking about this armor and he's and he's applying it to the church, he's not just talking about Roman soldiers. He is talking about Roman soldiers, but he's doing a lot more than that. If you were to go back to the Old Testament and you were to read through the book of Isaiah, one of the things you're going to learn about who God is is that God is a warrior. God is a warrior who fights for his glory in the lives of his people. And he arms himself. He wears gear in the process of confronting and combating sin and darkness In the process of combating oppression and injustice, when the Lord goes to war for his glory and the lives of his people, he's wearing armor. Let me give you some of the examples of this. Isaiah chapter 11, verse five. Listen to these descriptions of, of who God is in that Old Testament book. Righteousness will be a belt about his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Isaiah 59, 17. He put on righteousness as body armor and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings good news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 49, 2, he made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. So when Paul starts talking about this armor and applying it to the church, he's saying, what I want you to do is I want you to wear what the Lord has given you. You see, engaging in spiritual warfare has little to do with techniques. It has little to do with you learning how to pray the right words at the right time to set up a certain scenario to make sure you can accomplish something on a spiritual plane. It has far more to do with the armor or the reality of the the realities of the gospel that you are assuming, that you are applying, that you are internalizing in the heat of the battle. And so we put on the armor of the Lord is essentially saying that spiritual warfare is less about technique and it's more about character. It's more about knowing who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. It's about believing that, applying that, and appropriating that in our lives. This is how we stand up. This is how we gear up and stand up against the opposition of the enemy. Let's look at some of these, some of these elements. He refers first to the belt of truth. Now, the belt of truth, this is an interesting one because a belt is obviously something that kind of wraps around the, your core. Belt kind of holds everything together, which is good if you're going to go out and battle. You don't want to go with your pants down, so you need a good belt to hold everything together. So Paul starts there. He says, I want you to put on the belt of truth. And as the truth is wrapped around the core of a person's body, the belt of truth reminds us of the core of a person's identity. When you put on the belt of truth, essentially what you are doing is you are shoring up your identity in Christ. You are remembering who you are as a result of what Christ has done. Remember, this is how Paul started the book. He opens up the letter in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. He reminds us that we are saints in Christ Jesus. He says we need to recognize who we are in Christ. We are saints no matter what accusations come our way. We are saints no matter what temptations are hurled at us. We remember who we are in every moment of every day. That's what the belt of truth, the core of who we are is all about. So we put on the belt of truth, reminding ourselves that we are saints of God. We are sons and daughters of God. We are children of God. We are the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're remembering. That's what we're believing. That's what we're embracing. It's interesting that when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness at the start of his ministry, the very first thing that the devil sought to do was attack his identity. If you remember, he walks up to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, and then he challenges him to do something, You know, temptation and accusation will usually revolve around our understanding of who we are. And so we want to put on the belt of truth. We want to shore up who we are in Christ. But then he goes on, he moves from the belt of truth to the breastplate of righteousness. Now this breastplate that's being referred to, this is something that a soldier wore to cover up his vital organs. the, The vital organs that if they were struck, if they were pierced, that would lead to his death, no doubt. And so he moves to the breastplate of righteousness here. Now, now just a little uh, theological lesson of sorts. When the Bible talks, when the New Testament talks about righteousness, there are two ways that it talks about righteousness. One form of righteousness is what's called positional righteousness. Positional righteousness means that you and I, if we are in Christ, we are declared righteous, we are positionally righteous, meaning we are right with God in every moment of every day. That is our position in Christ. But then a second dynamic of righteousness isn't just positional, it's what's called practical. And practical righteousness speaks to the lives that we're living, so that we're living our lives uh, in an obedient direction, in a Godward direction. Practical righteousness speaks to the morality and the virtues of our lives that reflect the righteousness of God in practical ways. Now, when Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness, I believe he's talking about practical righteousness. And when he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, he's saying, look, I want you to make sure that every area of your life is submitted and surrendered to your God. Do not leave yourself vulnerable by having an area of your life that you have not surrendered, that you have not submitted. You see, a lot of times when we think about spiritual warfare, we think spiritual warfare is about the devil making good people bad people, but that's not it. Spiritual warfare isn't about God, the devil, making good people bad people. Spiritual warfare is about fallen people, frail people, fractured people being, to use a word that C.S. Lewis uses a lot, being fuddled by the enemy. It's not the devil taking good people and turning them into bad people. It's It's the devil taking fallen people and fuddling them, confusing them, distorting them, manipulating them, exploiting them. Let me show you how this works. If you look back at Ephesians chapter 4, you have a moment where Paul talks about uh, a person's anger. And he warns against anger being uh, allowed to linger in a person's heart. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, listen to what he says. He says, Be angry and do not sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this anger is a part of who a person is. A a person is angry. That's not the devil. That's them. They are angry. And he says, this is something about you, and it is possible for your anger to go sideways. So don't let it linger. Don't let it last. Be angry and do not sin. But if you allow it to last, it's going to lead you to sin. But here's why he gives that warning. He says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity don't give him space don't give him a foothold meaning the devil comes in upon us and he attacks us by taking that which is already that which is already not right within us and exploiting it areas of vulnerability areas that we have not surrendered or submitted to the reality of who God is the devil comes in and he exploits that and he takes advantage of it that's what spiritual warfare is all about it's not The devil taking good people and making them bad. It's the devil taking fallen people and exploiting them. Exploiting what's already not right within us. This is why we want to fight against sin. This is why we want to pursue obedience to the Lord. We want to exercise practical righteousness. Surrender and submit every area of our lives to God. But then he moves on to another piece of equipment. He refers to uh, shoes of peace. Or feet that are sandaled and they are ready to uh, stand in the gospel of peace. Now, shoes are helpful, right? They help us stand up. They help us advance. They help us move through the world. There was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who said one of the reasons why Caesar's armies were more powerful than many of the other armors, many of the other forces and armies in the world at that time, was simply because they had better shoes. Because his military had better shoes, they could walk further distances, they could walk across tougher terrain. They could stand for longer hours. The reason why they were effective is because they had better shoes. Well, one of the reasons why we as a faith family can have an impact on this world and we can stand against the forces of the enemy, we can advance against the opposition of the enemy, one of the reasons why we were able to do so, and nobody else in the world can, is because we have better shoes We have the gospel of peace that we're standing upon. We have the gospel of peace that is empowering us to advance in this world. This means as we begin to cultivate this and grow in this dynamic that we're willing to go to hard places and do hard things. We're willing to beat back the darkness of the enemy in areas and in places that nobody else is able to, nobody else is equipped to. Why? Because we have the shoes of peace that we're standing in, that we're wearing, and so we can stand up and we can advance. But then he moves on to another piece of armor. He refers to the shield of faith. Now if you look at this in verse 16, he says, in every situation take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So in addition to the enemy conspiring against us and scheming against us, he launches, he fires flaming arrows, and the only remedy to the flaming arrows he is launching at us when we are under attack is to lift up the shield of faith. These accusations and these temptations being hurled our way, when that happens, we hide behind our shields of faith. We hide behind Jesus. One of the unique things about the Roman shield is that a Roman shield was designed to latch And to connect with other shields in a troop. So that if I was a Roman soldier and I had my shield, I would go stand shoulder to shoulder with other soldiers. And I would take my shield and I would link it with theirs and others would link it with mine. That way we can mutually support one another. We can mutually lift up the shield of faith if we were in battle. And what I want you to think about is this. That if you're trying to live the Christian life in an isolated matter, detached from the family of faith, you do not stand a chance. It's only a matter of time before you bail on the faith. It's only a matter of time before you no longer follow Jesus, you no longer believe the gospel. It's just a matter of time. The shield of faith is too heavy for you to hold up on your own. The shield of faith is designed to be synced up with other shields so that we can support one another, help one another, lift it, and hold it high for as long as possible. So if you are detaching from the body, if you are isolated in your faith, you are You are an easy target for the enemy, and he will have his way with you. You're going to succumb to temptation. You're going to believe the accusations. You're going to find yourself no longer standing in the faith. And so your shield is designed to be wielded in the company of the redeemed, to be sinked into the family of faith. This is why we believe in the church. This is why we believe in community. This is why life together matters, because we need each other to be who God has called us to be and to do all the things that God has called us to do. One of the ways this fleshes out in my own life is that when I find those moments where I'm being tempted or accused and I am have a hard time believing the truths that I believe. I mean, I've studied the Bible a long time. I've walked with Jesus a long time. I know a lot of truth. I can give you the right answers on many things. But whenever I am under attack, when I'm being tempted or accused, the word in my heart, the truths that I know and that I believe, they don't seem to to echo very loud in my soul. And what I need in that moment is for those same truths, those same words to come to me through the mouth of another. Because the word in my own heart is oftentimes weaker than the word coming out of the mouth of a brother or a sister in Christ. I need someone to speak into my life so that my faith may be shored up and my shield may be lifted high. This is what we all need, because the word in your heart will be weaker than the word coming to you from the mouth of another. So we have the shield of faith here. But then he moves from the shield of faith to talking about the helmet of salvation. Now, these helmets were tough, iron, bronze helmets. They were heavy. They had cheekbone straps, so they kind of wrapped around your face. And they they were intense. But think about the idea of the helmet of salvation. What this reminds us of is that the Christian faith is a thinking faith. That the way we combat the enemy, the battlefield, ordinarily against the enemy's opposition has to do with the mind. How you are thinking about yourself. How are you thinking about your God? How are you thinking about the reality of spiritual warfare? So the helmet of salvation is designed to to remind us to protect our thinking. To fill our minds with truth. To think well and deeply about the gospel. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 would tell us that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we want our heads to be covered. We want our minds to be guarded so that lies don't creep in and are entertained. We want to think well. We're not headless horsemen riding through this world. Christians are, a Christian's mind is to be engaged in their relationship with Christ. A Christian's mind is to be engaged in the life that they are living in this world. This is why we want to study the Bible. We want to think deeply about who God is and what God is about. We want to wear the helmet of salvation. But then he goes on to one final piece of, of equipment. He refers to the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit is quickly qualified in verse 17 as the word of God. Now, the word word there, he, Paul could have chosen one of hey, the two words he could have gone with. He could have gone with the word logos. And had he used the word logos or word of God in that front, He would have been um, probably speaking to aspects of the written word. But he doesn't use the word logos here. Instead, he uses the word rima. And rima ordinarily was used not so much to written words but to spoken words. And so the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, speaks to the the spoken word of God, i.e., the gospel. That the sword of the Spirit, this offensive weapon that is used to beat back the enemy. This is one that can also serve defensive purposes. It is learning to speak the gospel into every area of our lives regardless of what situation we find ourselves in. The word translated sword there is a short sword. It is used in personal combat, which is important because earlier in the word struggle in verse 12, it refers to kind of a wrestling match, kind of hand-to-hand combat. So spiritual warfare is very close. It is very personal Is very intimate. And if we're going to fight well, we need to learn to wield the sword of the Spirit. We need to be filled with gospel realities, and we need to be able to speak gospel realities into the situations that we are in and into the lives of those that we are rallying with. This is exactly what Jesus would do. He would speak the word of God when when Satan came to tempt him in the wilderness. Every time Satan would quote Scripture and distort it, Jesus would respond with a better interpretation, a better application, a better word, and he would wield the sword of the Spirit in that moment. And it was the sword of the Spirit. Jesus wasn't just quoting Scripture. He was quoting the sword of the Spirit just before that moment. Jesus spent 40 days praying and fasting in the wilderness, and we're told that the Holy Spirit filled him up. So he was filled with the Spirit when Satan came at him. And so he was able to speak the right truths at the right time under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit in a way that would cause the devil to give up and to flee. And all of this brings us ultimately to the power of spiritual warfare that is talked about in verse 18. (coughs) The power of spiritual warfare where we are told to pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. He says, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Now, prayer is not associated with a piece of armor. And the reason why that is, because I think prayer is ultimately what energizes the use and the application and the appropriation of everything else. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shoes of peace, the sword of the Spirit, it is all energized and empowered as we pray at all times in the Spirit. Prayer is what enables us to internalize gospel realities in the midst of spiritual warfare. And so the power of spiritual warfare comes when we pray in the Spirit. We use the gift of praying in the Spirit to do so. Now, this doesn't mean to pray in tongues. Praying in the Spirit is, I mean, praying in tongues is nowhere found in the book of Ephesians. So, praying in the Spirit is not speaking of that. Praying in the Spirit means to be filled with the Spirit and to pray accordingly. Pray according to the impressions that He is placing upon you. Pray according to the truths that He has given us in the Scriptures. Pray according to the truths that He's bringing to your mind in a given moment. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And then He goes on to say, with every prayer and request, He says, stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints, meaning don't just pray for yourself, pray for everybody around you. Pray for the church. This is where our power comes from in spiritual warfare. This is why our prayer gatherings that we host every eight weeks or so, these prayer gatherings are more important than every one of us realize. We do not realize how important those prayer gatherings are. They are so important that when you do not prioritize participating in them, we are missing something. We are missing your role in spiritual warfare. We are missing your role in the family of faith, that is to engage praying at all times in the Spirit, interceding for all the saints. We need to gather together for the sake of praying in the Spirit together. You see, a prayerless church is a powerless church. But a prayerful church is a very powerful church, and that's what we want to be. So if you've yet to step into that moment, let me encourage you to do so. We have one coming up soon. Another way that you can engage in this dynamic of the church and helping us fight well in spiritual warfare is to participate with our prayer ministry team. Emily Shutsky leads our prayer ministry team. It's been rebooted in recent weeks, and she's working really hard to cast vision and direction to assemble a group of people who who are equipped and ready to pray with people week in and week out when we gather. And so if you step into this space, don't just uh, step and you have needs in your life. You're struggling with temptation. You're wrestling with accusation. We have a prayer ministry team that is ready and willing to pray with you to intercede for you. You can be honest with them about anything. They're not going to judge you in any way, shape, or form. They understand the reality of spiritual warfare. They understand the schemes of the devil. And they are going to be praying for you in light of all of that. And so every gathering, after we finish up this time, we move into our time of response and we open up the table and partake of the Lord's Supper and we worship through song. You can also take advantage of that time to go to one of our prayer ministry team members and and have them pray with you. Have them pray for you. Take some time to pray together. Every week they're going to be ready to do so. You'll see them with a the little prayer ministry team lanyard on so you can know kind of who's who as they as they are ready to serve you in that way. Take advantage of it. We must be a prayerful people. This is where power comes from praying in this spirit. I love what John Piper had to say about prayer in this regard. He makes this statement, We cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is certainly that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. He says that God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can all so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. <coughs> and so we want to pray in the spirit and as we are praying in the spirit that's when we will be empowered for the mission of the church. That's when we will be empowered to make grace visible to the world around us. We can be and do all the things that God is calling us to be and to do. This is what Paul is praying for. He says, look, when you pray, pray for me. I'm in prison. And although I'm in prison, I still have purpose. And so he says, pray that I will fulfill my purpose. Pray that I will, be, that I will not shrink back, but that I will share the gospel with boldness. No doubt he would be facing temptation. Temptation that would say, hey, look, when you stand before The emperor, don't mention Jesus' name. That's what got you here in the first place. And if you talk about Jesus, he's going to kill you. No doubt that temptation was operating in his mind. And so he says, I need you to pray for me. Pray that I don't shrink back. Pray that I stand. Pray that I'm bold. No doubt he was experiencing accusation in prison as perhaps the enemy whispered to him, look, the reason why you are in prison is because God's not for you. God doesn't love you. He doesn't want what's best for you. You are here suffering because you haven't been right. You haven't been faithful. You shouldn't have come to Rome in the first place. He, he may have been hearing these accusations, and so he says, Pray for me, intercede for me, so that I might be empowered for the mission. He refers to himself as an ambassador in chains. I love that phrase, ambassador. You know, Paul was an ambassador not because he was an apostle. He was an ambassador, not because he was an uh, an apostle. He was an ambassador because he was a Christian, which is why elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, chapter five, verse twenty, he refers to all Christians as ambassadors, saying that every Christian has a role to play in what God is doing in this world, and that we need to be empowered for mission. And we, when we engage the mission, we're going we're going to be opposed spiritually. Therefore, we must put on the armor of God. We must pray in the Spirit and participate in the mission. And so this means that each and every one of you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are an ambassador. You are a spokesperson for Jesus in this world. And if you are not filled with the Spirit, if you are not relying upon the strength of the Lord, you're not gonna speak very loud. You're not gonna speak very boldly. I'm reminded of this scene in The Lion King. If you haven't seen The Lion King by now, uh, I'm not apologizing. You should have seen that movie by now. But The Lion King, there's a scene when Simba was a cub. He was a small lion, and he and his gal pal ran out into the elephant graveyard, and they're hanging out playing in the elephant graveyard, a place they didn't belong. It was a dark and dangerous place, and while they were there, the hyenas came up, and the hyenas surrounded Simba, and they began to intimidate Simba and began to frighten him, and he's wanting to fight back. He's, he's not wanting to be beaten in that moment, and so he... he He breathes deep and he gets ready to let out a roar and to growl back at the hyenas. And so he breathes in and he gets ready to let one loose. But what comes out of his mouth is just this little whimper, a very puny growl, a puny roar, so much so that it caused the hyenas to laugh. They begin to fall over, bowling over in laughter, laughing at this little cub who has no strength, who has no power in and of himself. But then he he breathes in and he gives it another shot. Once again, it's just a little whimper of a growl. And then he breathes in one more time, only this time something changes because as he's breathing in in this moment, Mufasa shows up. His father arrives, and and when he breathes in and he begins to to growl, in that very same moment, his father roars. His father speaks. His father growls. And when the voice of the father is heard in that moment, the hyenas shrink back in fear. They run and they hide because they can't handle the power of his father. When it comes to spiritual warfare, the enemy cannot handle the power of your father. The enemy cannot handle the roar of God in your life. So we want to inhale the gospel. We want to breathe in the gospel. We want to be reliant upon the Holy Spirit. Because when we are and we begin to speak, God's voice comes through and he begins to roar on our behalf. And when God is speaking, when God is roaring, when God is growling, that's when the enemy is fleeing. That's when 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 becomes a reality. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world, so that you and I can live confident lives of faith, bold lives of action. We can engage spiritual warfare without being intimidated and without being overrun. By, yes, a strong enemy, yes, a smart enemy, yes, a scheming enemy, but we can overcome, not because you and I are strong enough, but because of who is with us and who has got us. I'm going to show you one passage as we close in Revelation chapter 12 that kind of puts all this into perspective. Revelation chapter 12, beginning of verse 7. We're cued into this picture of spiritual warfare. We don't know exactly at what point in time, uh, John, uh, th- these, these events that John is recording when they took place, but I just want you to hear what he saw in this moment. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon is the devil. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, "The The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him. How? They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they conquered through gospel realities. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. What he is saying is that the devil has ultimately been defeated, he's fighting a losing battle. But a defeated enemy is a dangerous enemy. And so he begins to exercise more fury, knowing his time is short. This is why you and I cannot be naive. This is why we cannot live lives of delusion. Our enemy, yes, he is ultimately defeated. But a defeated enemy is a dangerous enemy, and he might have lost the war, but he is, at times, winning battles in people's lives as he tempts, as he accuses, as he detaches people from community and he has his way with them so we want to be sober-minded we want to be alert we want to be aware of the reality of spiritual warfare we want to take advantage of the armor of the lord that has been given to us we want to pray at all times in the spirit we want to participate in the mission of god because when we are going forward the enemy is shrinking back and retreating in defeat Yes, Satan has been defeated ultimately. This means that when you and I engage in spiritual warfare, we are not fighting for victory as if everything depends upon us. We are fighting from a position of victory and the fact that Christ has won, Christ has defeated. And so we, in faith, trust our ultimate victory in the immediate battles of our lives and in the immediate battles of our journey through this world. Let's pray.